You know what we need more of is movies with lots of horses. Lots and lots of horses. That's what I'm thinking. You mean like Mask of Zorro? Like Mask of Zorro, yeah. Like th- th- those horse stunts are st- – I mean the whole time I'm watching Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, I'm just thinking I love that there are so many horses, but I wish they did more with them. I wish yeah, they yeah. played more. I tell you what, I'm I'm on record here on the show. Love love me a horse movie. Uh, love love that. It's it's really right in my wheelhouse of things that uh, I specifically uh, look for in my cinema going pleasures. Give me um, give me your horse stunts, please. So we got to put Hidalgo on the list now. Is that what's Ooh, you know what? Hey, uh, a forgotten movie from the mid aughts. But I'll tell you what, I mess with Hidalgo. It's a good movie. Yeah, Viggo Mortensen, not Native American, but all right. God, yeah, I tell you what, uh, as much as we talk about the uh, the 90s being like the uh, the 50s, the mid-aughts, uh, the more we go back and look at a lot of the movies from the first half of that decade, it just seems lost in time. It does not seem like it could possibly come from the, that decade. Yeah, that's a big whoops-a-daisies. You know what else is strange, though, as a choice for a lot of close combat kind of fighting movie? The bow and arrow. The bow and arrow is not a great <laughs> melee. You're in, you know, close. It, it, it's just, it's not a good battle weapon. It's good for the guys no. who are up on a hill far, far away from everybody else. But it's not really all you that. You're Legolas. Yes. And you're, and he, he is not. Yeah. I've never tried to parry a strike from a long sword with a piece of bent you. Uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't imagine. It goes as smoothly as it does in this film, but, it, you know, it looks fun on camera. And I gotta say, when you do, like, a little poke-poke move, like, jab to the head with it, I don't think it makes quite that satisfying thud sound. I do uh, think it would hurt quite badly. I, I don't think it'd be pleasant, no, but I don't think it's like... It, it, it seemed like you were being hit with a mace, uh, the way that they were playing acting it on, <laughs> on the film, and I'm not quite sure I buy that one. Hmm. So, hey, Dustin, speaking of films... What movie we talking about? Oh, we're talking about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Hello and welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast, where we gather around our laptops because of social distancing and discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is definitely one of that sort. It is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Kevin Costner's star vehicle with great performances from Alan Rickman and Morgan Freeman, uh, and maybe less so from other actors. But we'll talk more about that later. And uh, so, yeah, I am still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And yeah, uh, we, we remain around laptops and, and uh, gaming rigs. Uh, in our pajamas. How, uh, Arthur, I know, uh, you're, you unfortunately are having to go into a place that expects you to have pants on. Uh, Dustin, what's your, what's your ratio of days in sweatpants to days in real clothes at right now? Uh, probably five to two, I think is pretty yeah, close. That makes, yeah, I don't, that makes I don't, sense. I don't put on pants unless I'm leaving the house, and I'm hardly ever leaving the house right now. I had to go to the eye doctor, uh, and then we did it all with masks on. Everybody masked up for the whole thing, and it was, uh, it was a surreal experience. And uh, I, I, I got to go back to the bubble, y'all. Uh, if half my face covered, how are people going to know I'm handsome? I, I want to live uh, in the, in the <laughs> handsomeness bubble. Uh, and that's, you know, I think that's something Robin Hood struggles with. The anonymity <laughs> sure does help you. The anonymity sure does help you be a guerrilla fighter. But if they don't know you're Robin and Loxley, how they're going to know you're so cute uh, and, you know, a freedom fighter they can like. 
I, These are the questions that this film could be asking, it, and it does not. It does not. not ask those questions, <laughs> and perhaps not yeah. any others as well. But we'll talk more about that later. I might ask a question or two. It may or may not provide an answer, but we'll we'll get there as well. Uh, but anyway, in case you're tuning into the Good Trash Undercast for the very first time, we want to let you know that this is not a review show. It's an analysis show, and that does mean we're going to spoil this. So uh, the way – I mean, it's a Robin Hood story, so you know – Robin Hood wins in the end, of course, but the specific ways in which Robin Hood wins and the specific ways in which the villains are given their due, uh, we are going to probably get into some of that. So if you are spoiler-averse, here is how you can still listen to the show and avoid those. Uh, we start out with a uh, synopsis, which will be fine, uh, and then we'll move on into uh, a thumbs-up, thumbs-down review which will, you know, smell slightly of garlic from downwind of spoilers, but won't be full-out spoilery, right? Uh, and then we move into a, a level in which we desperately need a bath, but it's still not the worst kind of stink of spoilers uh, when we expand the syllabus. And then we get the moment in which we have rubbed the horse manure all over ourselves of spoilers, and it will stinketh greatly of spoilers uh, there when we get down to business and analysis. So there you go, dear listener. You have sweet, been warned. Sweet Lord, <laughs> what what a scatological analogy uh, you conjured uh, for everyone. I'd forgotten about uh, the poop smearing in this movie. It's been a couple of weeks since I there, watched it. There are it. various levels of stench that sort of make plot points. Yeah, I'm glad you reminded movie. me of that. Uh, I'd totally forgotten about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, whew, what a film. Can I go first? I, I feel pretty jazzed up now after you reminded me about the poop. Well, no. You can't go at all because Arthur has oh, to go and get shucks, synopsis. that's right. Uh, hey, Arthur, what happened in this movie? <laughs> the classic folk tale receives the early 90s blockbuster treatment from Kevin Reynolds, with Kevin Costner as the titular hero. After returning to his home following time in prison in Jerusalem, Robin of Loxley discovers his father has been murdered and his land taken by the wicked sheriff of Nottingham. Robin soon takes up with a band of merry men to begin robbing the rich and giving back to the poor. This rebellion forces the sheriff to figure out a way to get rid of Robin once and for all. With a budget of $48 million, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves became the second highest grossing film of 1991 with $390 million worldwide, right behind T2, Judgment Day. You have got to be crapping my damn ass. Oh, everybody saw this movie. I saw this movie twice, I think, in the theater. Yeah. What was going on in 1991? I know I was but a wee babe, but I... Good. I, I, you know, you'd think you'd remember something like that. <laughs> Costner sold tickets, man. Ah, I guess. He really did. And, and, and the movie is a romp, but we'll get more into that in reviews. Our, Dalton, you're so excited. Go ahead and give us your thumbs up, thumbs down review. Well, look, yeah, I think I'm so excited because I, too, like, I have memories of this movie. Uh, this this is a film we owned uh, on VHS when I was a child. Uh, it saw some heavy rotation because, yeah, you know, bows and arrows. I, I had multiple... Uh, versions of the tale of Robin Hood on VHS as a child. And this was one of them. And it, yeah, it, it got a lot of rotation because uh, I, I think there's a lot to like here. Uh, just again, in premise alone, it's it's a fun story, right? I mean, this is one of the reasons it's a, a folk tale uh, that has continued to uh, survive for so many centuries. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the reasons that it's continued to survive in Hollywood. Uh, it's a known IP. It's a known folk tale. It's, you know, it's you make a Robin Hood movie that people know what they're going to get. You know what I mean? Um, and maybe I, I assume we can talk later uh, about uh, public domain characters. That'll be a fun thing to get to an analysis. But yeah, I, I have a connection to this film. I, I grew up with a, a fondness for it. So I was excited to revisit it. And 
boy, howdy, was I disappointed. Uh, and I didn't really expect that. Uh, I, I had recalled Kevin Costner's non-accent uh, a, a bit, and I had uh, come to know it as a cultural uh, punchline in, in the intervening years since I'd seen it. But damn, Kevin's doing a weird voice in this movie, y'all. Uh, and I don't really know what to make of it. Uh, he He can't quite muster any kind of English accent. Uh, so what he ends up doing is just really pitching his voice up, uh, it, and it makes him sound petulant. We were talking in the chat uh, after uh, some of us had watched the movie, and Arthur, you mentioned that he just seems like he's playing him way younger. Uh, and I agree, yeah, it's he, he just seems like a 19-year-old, a and, and that does seem to be a bit of the scripting as well. Uh, and I guess that brings us to finally putting a point on this this long tangent I've been on. Kevin Costner's wrong for this movie. It's not it's not right. It doesn't make any sense. And sure, in 1991, it put asses in seats. But who? Where was the grown up in the room? Where was the grown up in the room that that looked at Kevin Costner and didn't say, uh, "You know what, guys? I don't I don't think this is gonna work." Uh, you, you know that Carrie Ellis guy? Uh, you seen Prince uh, Princess Diary? Or Princess Bride, yeah, you seen this movie? Let's get that guy. Uh, I don't know where, where where that executive was in the development of this film, but uh, I, I think we desperately needed them. And it's not that I don't like Kevin Costner, uh, but he's he's a specific presence and a specific energy. And I can I think I can see the math that would have led somebody to think he'd make a good Robin Hood. Um, but yeah, it, it it is endemic of. Uh, you, you know, we've we've mentioned a couple of times, and Arthur, you mentioned in your your synopsis for us, uh, it is the '90s blockbuster treatment, and that is kind of a, a very, despite not being a cohesive genre, it is kind of a specific energy. Um, I, I think if you've seen two or three, maybe even four '90s blockbusters, you do start to get a sense of what they're all doing and, and a commonality in terms of uh, tone and, and plotting. You know, much like we complained about the the formula uh, of Marvel movies now, uh, 90s blockbusters, despite not being in a shared universe, did definitely uh, all exist of, of a piece with each other. And it's not that I, I don't think that that energy is right for this. Uh, that energy could be right for this story, uh, I guess is what I mean to say. It's just, again, the Kevin Costner of it all really uh, is kind of weird. Uh, and I, I know I've spent a lot of time on that, but that—that that is what it comes down to. Uh, outside of that, though, the action direction is just kind of eh. Um, as we were talking about horses coming in, uh, Dustin, you're right. There's just not enough horse stuff in this movie. Uh, give me some cool stunts. Uh, uh, if, if you're telling me a Robin Hood story, and Arthur, you mentioned uh, the Mark of Zorro or the Mask of Zorro uh, that we did a few weeks ago, and I think maybe that is uh, souring me especially on Prince of Thieves, as we just watched a, a 90s uh, throwback uh, blockbuster, and it just did everything this movie was trying to do a lot better, and it didn't have to have so much icky, uh, implied sexual assault, uh, which this movie's got a ton of, uh, and uh, it just kind of adds up into this column of weird stuff this movie's doing, uh, up to and including the very 90s Hollywood uh, isn't it great? We solved racism stuff that they're doing with Morgan Freeman. Um, yeah, it's, it's a weird mismatch of things and calling it a nineties blockbuster really does say so many, so many words about it, Arthur. I'm glad, uh, you use that phrasing to talk about it. Um, that, I think that's what I've got. I've rambled a bit on this. Uh, I don't hate the movie. Uh, I'm just kind of bored with it.
Alrighty, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, Arthur? Do you bring a counterpoint to this conversation? My dad was not a fan of Kevin Costner, so we never watched Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, growing up in our household. Uh, nor did we watch any Kevin Costner films uh, growing up in our household. Um, and so I had no sort of, I, I, I swear I've had to have seen this once at least some, you know, sometime, but I, I really can't recall, you know, with the, you know, put a finger on uh, whether I have or not. So I feel like I've seen it, but I, you know, I can't be positive. I, I, I must have at some point, but, um, I don't have that, you know, nostalgia for it. And I, this is a bad movie. Um, top to bottom it is you know bad um dalton's hit on a lot of it you know the kevin costner stuff you, you make excellent points i second those uh, i think he's miscast i think it's oddly written i think kev you know costner's performance you, you know down the down the row you were you were making solid points there um and i think kevin reynolds just really fails this movie as a director i think you know the kind of stories of Costner locking out the editor and editing a lot of this himself, probably doing some direction. You know, he's worked as a director. He's a best director winner. Um, so I, I feel like that's a lot of it. I know he had scenes cut of Rickman when he felt he was upstaging him. And so I, I, I really feel like there's a <laughs> dynamic. And I think on the flip side, I think again, Reynolds fails by allowing Rickman's performance. I think so much of the tonal disparity comes between this very grounded, very realistic filmmaking when Costner's present versus Rickman just off the rails. You know, he agreed to do this when he asked for kind of full creative control and got to rework some of the script. And so much of what Rickman does deserves to be in, in men in tights. The, the lines, you know, 1030, my room, 1045, my room, bring a friend. They add a scar to his statue after he gets cut. Like those bits feel like they should be in the parody of this movie. And I think Reynolds fails the film there by not reigning in Rickman. I, you know, that's half the job. I, I, Rickman's a blast. He's the saving grace of this movie and the movie he is in is much more interesting than this. But I think again, that's a failure of Reynolds and the editing and, and the performers. And so I, I really struggle with that. Um, the arrow splitting is cool. You know, I think a lot of the action in this movie is bad. I, I think the editing, the real close cut fights, uh, when he fights John Little on the, the river, you know, it's a lot of close ups. And I don't want to see these two men like grunting and straining. I want to see kind of wide shots of them doing some really fancy, flashy, uh, bow staff fighting or sword fighting. And we never really get that. It's a lot of choppy editing, a lot of reaction shots. Uh, it's just poorly constructed. It's badly edited. I, you know, I don't even think the costumes or the set design are that good. I, I think it looks bad. I think it looks ugly. I, I don't know. I, I, I just top to bottom. I, I think this is just a stinker. And I really found outside of, you know, I, I enjoy Rickman, but I don't think he's a saving grace of this movie. I think he's just another reason why it doesn't work. And, and so he makes it entertaining, but I, I feel like the whole thing's just a failure. So yeah, I, I, I can't like this movie. Sorry, guys. Arthur, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up Rickman. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't even get to him and, and I'm, I'm in total agreement with you. It, he is a hoot. Uh, but it is, yeah, he, he feels like he is doing a parody of 
he seems annoyed at the performance they want him to do, so he's turning it up to 11 and knowing that nobody's going to notice because he's in a movie made by hacks. Uh, I mean, he... He seems he, like he's... Yeah, he's, uh, he's throwing a temper tantrum a little bit in a way that I think is pretty gangster. He, uh, he took the scenery, put it on a spit, roasted it, and then just gnawed on it for two and a half hours. Uh, he yeah. is just, you know, and, and he's yeah. just doing his own thing in his own world and it is wild and it is fun to see it on screen and documented, but it is, you know, it's something else. Yeah. We, we've talked about the river of ham, uh, made famous on blank check over on this show before. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's, oof, he is loving it. He's having a, a grand old time. Uh, Dustin, what, what about you? Are you, uh, at a different place with this movie than the, the rest of us? I think I am, and the reason uh, I'll get to the reason why, um, because nothing you guys have said is wrong. Alan Rickman's in a different movie. Michael Wincott, who plays Guy of Gisborne, by the way, Michael Wincott is in this movie, he, and he's great. He is in the same movie as Rickman, and you're right, Wincott rules. Is that, but, is that Friar yeah. Tuck? No, no, no the bad guy from The Crow. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Friar yeah, Tuck yeah. is also in the other movie. Also, yeah, Ed is. Dean from Psycho, if you remember that. Oh yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, so he he gets some work. Um, yeah, he, he he's a very very bored jailer in the Count of Monte Cristo as well. Um, there's a specific kind of set of roles that Michael Wincott plays, and he's perfect for this. Um, I, I mean, I love me some Friar Tuck. I also uh, recently uh, just randomly ran back into uh, Little John. He is uh, the uh, Sir Ector of A Knight's Tale, by the by. Uh, that uh, young baby uh, Heath Ledger goes to work for. Oh yeah, yeah. He's like in it for like two seconds. He's not in the movie very long at all. But uh, so anyway, just randomly saw him recently, and I'll talk more about that later probably. But uh, so there are a lot of movies. Christian Slater's in a movie that none of the other characters are in. Uh, The Witch (laughs) is in a completely. I mean, because Christian Slater's in some sort of Brat Pack movie. Um, The Witch is in a a, a different movie as well. This this. I don't even know what to describe. No, I think she's in the same. I think she's in the same movie as Rickman and uh, 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 Michael McShane. I don't. uh, She's scary to me. Now she's like in a proto crap. What movie's Morgan Freeman in? Morgan Freeman is in (laughs) an entirely a different movie as well, right? Yeah, he's in Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, uh, he's in Driving Mr. Lockley. Oh man! (laughs) Oh God! No, Driving Mr. Lockley. Uh, So I mean, okay, all of that is is true. All of that is accurate. Um, and the fight choreography itself, if you're looking for a kung fu movie, you're looking for a John Wick movie, it's not there. But in terms of action and pacing, I think it is there. That fight scene with Friar Tuck, I get it. Not Friar Tuck, Little John. I get it. And I understand the sense of it, I understand what's happening, and I understand the stakes of it. Uh, the sword fight at the end with uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham, I get the stakes. The big, huge attack scene uh, where the Celts uh, make their attack on the little, you know, uh, Endor Ewok forest that, uh, the, uh, the Barry men have built somewhere there in Nottingham, uh, all, all, or Sherwood forest. That's, that's all great. Hey Dustin, uh, thanks yes. for bringing up the Celts. I'd forgotten to, uh, talk about the anti-Irish racism in this movie, which yeah, I'm yeah, very excited to talk about later. That's, that's a whole nother thing, but, but nonetheless, like it makes at least narrative sense and the stakes are clear. And, uh, you know, when they, when they tie Will Scarlet down to one of the barrels that's got the gunpowder that Asim has built, 
uh, or made uh, as part of their sort of escape plan to, to save these men from the gallows. Like, all of that works for me. Uh, Alan Rickman works for me. Kevin Costner, despite the fact that his accent is awful and never is right, has charisma for days. And he works for me. Maid Marian, she works for me. Asim works. Uh, Christian Slater works. I mean, there's a way in which I don't care that they're in different movies. I just like watching these people on screen and having a, what seems to be a pretty good time because they all get to make their, the movie they would rather be in. And in a weird way, that's kind of oddly freeing in watching the film. And uh, so and here's my defense, though, of the movie, which is semi-theoretical. We, we usually save analysis for the end. But I'm going to do a little bit of mini-analysis right now because I think it's important to show you show why I like it. Because the movie is a movie all about desire and its frustration. And that, like the surrealist uh, sort of attraction to one of the early biblical epics of the 1950s, The Prodigal, uh, the reason why they liked it is not because it was good, but because it was just intellectually interesting. That all the time, Robin wants to get with Marion, and he can't. And finally, when he can Sean Connery messes it up. It's cool. All the time, Friar Tuck wants to get his beer, and he can't. And finally, when he can, he's being messed up because these guys are making out, and he can't get to it. All the time, Asim wants to fulfill his promise, but he can't because these English don't get along. All the time, because Will Scarlet wants to sort of get revenge, he can't because it's actually a relation. Uh, I won't give that spoiler away at this point, I guess. Um, it, it's all the time the sort of frustrated it, it, it's all this buildup it's all the, the whole movie is in a way emotional redemptive or re, re, revenge foreplay all the way through and it never climaxes and that's kind of fun i don't know why i don't know why i dig it but for some reason i'm into it and so i like this movie a lot so there you go that's my argument for why it's fun, not because it's good, but because it's kind of bad, and it's rare to have a movie that is frustrating in the particular way that this film is frustrating. You know, uh, Dustin, that is kind of a good point. Uh, there are moments that I'll admit that I did feel uh, moved. But that's because I'm an idiot, and I like I like the movie. Uh, so I, it's very easy to make me, uh, you know, get a little weepy if the score is right in the performance. Oh, you work a little Brian Adams William. in that score, yeah, that'll move you, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. There's there's real emotional stakes for most of the characters in this film. Uh, I guess I just like all of that boiled down into the joke of a literal metal chastity belt in Robin Hood Men in Tights <laughs> a little bit better. Uh, making the sexual frustration uh, of Robin Hood just the plot of the movie is kind of funny. Uh, and basically what's going on in, in Prince of Thieves, I guess. Uh, but I appreciate your defense. So, well, there you go, dear listener. We're generally con. it. None of us are saying this is a good movie. But nonetheless, there might be things we want to say about it. And so we're going to move on to the next portion of the show in which we are teaching this film in some sort of university-level course. It might be a film studies course. It might be something entirely different. And we're creating the module or the entire course that it is part of and giving you some of the auxiliary additional readings uh, that would accompany the film. So that's the game that we're about to play. I'm going to go to you first, Arthur. How would you teach Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves in a university setting? Yeah, so I want to make this the... Uh, next module in my O-Tour class uh, that I started a few weeks ago when we did The Mask of Zorro and talked about Martin Campbell and The Mature en Saint. Uh, and there we kind of talked about where that 
fails the auteur theory. And I think this is again, another instance, uh, a movie and a period and an actor who really kind of throw a wrench into the auteur theory as well. As I mentioned in my review, there's some noticeable, noticeable, uh, involvement from Costner in the editing in the acting kind of having, you know, his, uh, Rickman's parts cut or, you know, stuff like that. Um, and so he's, he's kind of having an authority, authoritative, uh, say in what's happening in, uh, Prince of Thieves. And this is really a movie. Um, him and Kevin Reynolds are like really close friends. They worked together, uh, before this, um, I think on Fandango, maybe Silverado. I can't remember. They work uh, again later on, I believe Waterworld. Um, so that they're really close, you know, they're best friends or close friends. And so Costner kind of uses some of his clout to help this get made. There were three projects of Robin Hood circulating the studios and, uh, Morgan Creek, uh, was the one that kind of won out after they got, uh, Costner involved, I believe. And so, you know, his kind of clout helps us to get made. And it's something, you know, it's something we kind of continue to see in his career when we get to Waterworld and when we get to The Postman, uh, where he's using his clout to get these movies made and they just kind of fail. Um, and so I, I kind of want to start with a reading I found. This was an article in the LA Times from August 91, uh, written by Nina East, Easton. Um, it's called The High Price of Ego in Hollywood. Why do people spend so much on so little? For all the lamentations, bad movies are a matter of relationships and muscle. And so what she does is kind of go through the 80s and some of the 70s and picks out a few case studies of actors who had earned some clout and use that clout to try to make these movies that they were artistically interested in. Uh, the big case study for her is Bruce Willis and Hudson Hawk. Uh, so that would be the first viewing uh, in the class uh, is Hudson Hawk to look at that, kind of see Bruce Willis's rise and uh, examine what happens in this movie and then where it kind of goes wrong. Uh, another one she mentions is Warren Beatty. And so I think with Warren Beatty, uh, we would probably look at Dick Tracy, uh, which I think is a fascinating movie. I just watched it uh, for the first time in a long time uh, a couple of weeks ago. And again, it's a movie that kind of flops. Beatty's got a lot of clout coming out of the new Hollywood. He's done quite a bit, earned a lot of success. He's producing a quite a bit, starring quite a bit. I think he's directed some at this point. And so, you know, to see that all kind of coming together at Dick Tracy and the public reaction to that, I think is fascinating, um, especially in light of how much influence Batman had just a couple of years prior. Um, and so, Examining some of that from a studio perspective as well as a author, uh, authorial, uh, approach. Uh, and then from there, I want to move into some more modern examples of this. One of the most notorious egos in Hollywood is Ed Norton, who is always, uh, talked about as being a person who tries to rewrite lines or deviate from the script and get his vision put on screen. And so with that, I would go with, uh, the Incredible Hulk, uh, Louis uh, Leterrier, uh, the second film in the MCU, uh, which really does have this kind of clash of ideas playing out. And I know Norton got some of his stuff on screen and some of it works, uh, but I've you know heard a lot of rumor that he is very hard to work with. And I think that's a good example as it is this giant studio film and this kind of fledgling experiment and to see his place in that. And obviously he doesn't come back and there's probably a lot of good reason as to why. Uh, and then finally, another notorious ego is Will Smith. Um, and I would go with After Earth. This is a project that he developed uh, for him and his son. 
And he brought in Shyamalan and all of the marketing kind of erases Shyamalan. It's all about Will Smith and the movie just busts. It flops. And I think, you know, it's another example, a modern example of the star whose success is kind of fading and really examining where he was at that point in time, because he'd already kind of started to not be quite as busy as he was in the late nineties and early aughts. And so it comes at an interesting time also as an experiment, I think to try to launch his son. And so looking at that would be a very fun uh, place to round out this class. Now you're probably asking, what about Tom Cruise? And he's one I really did think about including, but honestly, Tom Cruise has had what two flops in about a 30 year career. The guy makes quality movies that people go see. Unlike a lot of these other guys who have, kind of taken this artistic vision and it just doesn't work. It backfires on him. And I think Tom Cruise is a different example um, of that. You know, he, he had some rough years, but a lot of that was because of his appearance in the public eye, not really the movies he was making. And so I think he's kind of the er example and maybe we do bring him in just to kind of have that contrast to see when it does work, when it doesn't work. But I think for my course, my syllabus, I want to kind of continue to break down a tour theory where it falls apart and look at it from the uh, actor and the star uh, angle. So that's my class. Outstanding. Outstanding. I love that. I love that. The reverend, the reverend doctor himself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I wonder about like, I'm not sure what movie you'd pick, but thinking about Orson Welles a little bit, you know, as I did think about Welles and I don't know, you know, I'm not quite as familiar, obviously with his filmography, maybe something in a later period, um, after he's kind of gone and started doing weirder stuff, maybe. Um, but you know, you're more of an expert there. Well, I don't he's got know one direction. Well. And I think about Charlton Heston as well is maybe an interesting point of contact. Yeah. Well, and I think Dustin, you bringing up those, those, uh, old timers as it were, uh, is interesting because I, I think that what's so interesting about your, your syllabus that you've crafted, Arthur, is it is this modern attempt to set the system up like the old school studio system, right? It is an attempt to shoehorn the idea of the leading man uh, into a cinema that it, that's already losing it, right? You know, we talk about that that era being kind of dead now, but it didn't die all at once, right? It was a, it was a death by a thousand cuts. Um, so I think focusing on this later period, you know, the '90s and the aughts, where you you see that you know the Cary Grant, uh, the Jimmy Stewart, it just it doesn't exist anymore, and if it does, it's you know, Tom Cruise, it's one in a million, or it's Brad Pitt who doesn't, you know, make your movie definitely hit, but you know, who has a, a kind of undeterminate box office appeal. Um, so yeah, I love that, man. I, I like where you're coming at it, but Dustin, I think that's a good point bringing up some of those, those old fashioned egos who got, maybe got away with it a little bit more. I mean, at times and at times they got blacklisted also because they were no longer marketable or Orson Welles particularly seems to, after uh, Citizen Kane, to become persona non grata and has several projects that are pretty janky and doesn't do much work in Hollywood until he comes back for Touch of Evil in 58. And then he's gone again. And so I I think that's maybe an interesting interplay as well and the difficulty he has with financing. Um, So, But anyway, um, I love that, Arthur. I think it's fantastic. I I, I would be excited to take that class. Um, Hey, Dalton. What, what yes. class are you teaching, man? Uh, we're going to be talking uh, a class called Robins B. Hood. Uh, we're just going to talk about all the Robin Hoods uh, and, and, and variations thereon. I, I think this is going to skew more towards a uh, a folklore class, an anthropology class, that kind of kind of a, a general cultural studies class. 
but we'll use scenes and clips from different Robin Hood properties uh, to kind of take us through this journey. I, I think we are going to have to start with, you know, some of the ballads. We are going to have to look back at the origins of this folk character whose origins are even uh, a little more nebulous than uh, a similar English folk character, King Arthur, somebody we talked about uh, when we did um, The Kid Who Would Be King uh, earlier, I guess towards the tail end of last year. Um, so I, I think this class, even uh, as much as that one, I know Arthur, I think you talked about looking to some of the text and source materials for your class uh, on that episode. I think that's where we're going to have to start uh, with this class. There are a few collections. Uh, I'm not going to throw a bunch of names at you that you're not going to remember a listener, mostly because I didn't feel like memorizing the names. Uh, suffice it to say, uh, and unsurprisingly, as with many oral traditions, uh, whether it's uh, Norse mythology uh, or uh, the Christian texts, uh, all of these kind of have these scattered texts, and then eventually somebody got together and wrote them all down. And Robin Hood kind of goes that way, much like uh, King Arthur. Uh, but once we've sort of gotten a framework for this character whose historicity is uh, largely kind of agreed upon more than you know King Arthur, uh, there is still some consideration. Like, this is probably a real guy. Uh, there aren't really as hard a consensus on, on whether or not this person really existed Um it is a little more dubious, it seems like, uh, or rather it's much more certain that it's probably an amalgamation of several real-life characters, potentially. Uh, but again, very interesting stuff uh, going through there, uh, but I think that's where we're going to start the class. Uh, the films that we'll probably really be focusing on, we're going to be looking at, obviously, The Adventures of Robin Hood uh, from, what is that, 38? Somebody help me out here. Uh, I had it written down, but I can't find it. Uh, it's not important. The Errol Flynn one. The one y'all know and love. Uh, I've actually never seen this film uh, start to finish. I've seen it in bits and pieces. Uh, so I, I would get to finally give that film a proper watch and prepping for this class. So that would be very fun. Uh, so we'll definitely be using that. We will, of course, be using Prince of Thieves uh, to kind of show uh, sort of an end date uh, of when this is last bankable. Um, but I, I definitely think we'll, we'll also be looking at the 1973 animated one from uh, Walt Disney Studios, uh, which is uh, a film that is seeing a, a <laughs> something of a return to popular consciousness as everybody seems to come to agreement that they all had a crush on the uh, the foxes in that movie. It's a weird, it's a weird thing to see people talking about online. It's very funny uh, to me. Uh, anybody who uh, happened to listen to people's history back, uh, people's history of film uh, with Arthur and I back in the day. Uh, know that when I would ask our, our guests on that show, uh, characters from film that they, they remember having a crush on, uh, Robin Hood Fox was a, a popular answer, wasn't it, Arthur? Uh, that it was. And I just have to say, Maid Marian is very foxy. I'm telling you, man, uh, those, those voice actors have chemistry in that film. Uh, so I think we're going to use that one because I think, uh, that one and then finally Robin Hood Men in Tights, uh, I think, uh, Carrie Ellis, uh, and Amy uh, Yazbek as Marion. I think the two comedy ones, the cartoon and the straight-up parody, I think have the best chemistry. Uh, so I think the, that real character relationship is something we'll focus on. Uh, but we'll definitely look at Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, which takes all of the stuff you know about Robin Hood and pff, throws it out the window. Who gives a shit? Uh, and makes its own movie. Uh, I, I think from in terms of a theoretical point, we'll probably look at a, a recent video essay, or uh, I don't know how recent it is, but uh, Patrick Willems, uh, based in New York, uh, creator, does a lot of uh, filmmaking and, and video essays, uh, has one about uh, the 
Hollywood's frequent attempts, specifically with King Arthur and Robin Hood, uh, to use these public domain characters. I, I think that uh, that essay is about 30 minutes long or so. I think it's a really solid framing conversation as we're looking at clips from these different films and talking about the, the folklore history um, of this character. I think that essay and some other related texts will really be helpful for framing this conversation about how folklore characters evolve and change, uh, I definitely think will be uh, probably at least one class we'll talk about Omar uh, from The Wire, played by Michael K. Williams, obviously a kind of similar uh, robbing from, from uh, you know, the, the, the drug dealers uh, in his neighborhood in Baltimore uh, and redistributing those means, uh, usually to himself. But again, a, a similar, you know, folk character, famous for robbing from drug dealers. Uh, and I think there's a lot of permutations. We'll probably look at Zorro a little bit. You know, there's a lot of permutations of this type of uh, really interesting uh, liberator of means character throughout, uh, you know, folklore traditions. I think it's really exciting. It's actually funny. Um, I'm getting ready to play tabletop. Uh, obviously, if you go to patreon.com forward slash GTM, uh, you can hear uh, Dustin and I play a Monster of the Week, a, a tabletop role-playing game with Arthur. Uh, it's uh, we're, we're, you know, we, we live in a, uh, you know, a Buffy supernatural uh, X-Files type Monster of the Week TV show. Uh, but another game uh, based on that same engine uh, it's called City of Mists. I'm getting ready to play that with some uh, good trash family favorites. Uh, you know, your Alex Sanchez's, your Heath Huffman's, your Kirsten Thurkelson's. Uh, and uh, you get to have a character that's based on a folklore character in that. And uh, I'd already picked to have my character somewhat based on Robin Hood before uh, Dustin uh, kind of uh, pointed us in the direction of doing this movie uh, once Arthur brought it up. So uh, I, I'm very excited about talking about Robin Hood in this type of folklore character, even if I am frustrated by uh, Prince of Thieves. So uh, me dragging it and review aside, uh, look at the wide-ranging conversation we can have with this character, uh, how it's constantly evolved uh, and changed throughout uh, storytelling uh, traditions. Uh, yeah, it's we've done a couple of classes like this on the show before, but I think this will be a fun one, uh, especially with this character. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I would be into that class. Uh, I want to move on into my class, though, that I want to teach, which is Imaginary England is what I want to call the module. I'm not I'm not sure if it would be part of a British cinema class in a broader sense or Britain and cinema because uh, many of the movies I'm choosing are American films with their depictions of Great Britain. And so some parts of my mind are not quite made up uh, regarding this. But clearly in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, this is a Britain that never existed. Asim would never have made it off the boat. He would have been buried at sea. He would have, I mean, there's, there's no chance. No chance at all. And the sort of easy way in which, uh, he gets accepted, like, it, it, it's, it's entirely imaginary. It is the 90s. We fixed racism, uh, sort of understanding. And we fixed classism as well, you know. Um, that the imaginary England, uh, what I mean is an idealistic, kind of England uh, that we want to talk about in terms of these films. Uh, one of the first films that I would want to screen then and therefore is Beckett, starring Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole. I don't know if you guys have seen Beckett, uh, but it is uh, the story of Thomas A. Beckett, who uh, was an advisor to the king, who sort of by, I'm not sure what rationale, got promoted to Archbishop of Canterbury and suddenly found his faith. 
Uh, and in so doing, he opposed <laughs> the king on several pretty significant matters and ends up, uh, there's a, there's a moment that happens and we're not, we're not exactly sure what exactly the king Henry II said, but he says something along the lines of, will someone rid me of this meddlesome priest? And, uh, which is the line for the film. And, or will this meddlesome priest never go away? Or, you know, we don't know exactly what was said. But uh, a couple knights heard him and said, oh, you want us to kill him. And so they went and they did. And uh, he became a martyr uh, for uh, both the Anglican Communion and the Roman Catholic Church. And, uh, but it is this, the way the film depicts it is that Thomas A. Beckett is Saxon, while Henry II and the rest of the nobles are all Normans. And the way in which uh, those racial distinctions are sort of being overcome and they don't matter and we're all one humanity. And the way in which uh, it also depicts an idea of faith, in which faith uh, sort of trumps all of the uh, ancient and awful and disgusting past of feudalism and of British empirical history. And that somewhere along the line, you know, the Church of England has always sort of been continuing on. And uh, because of that... We're entirely justified in all the stuff that we've done. And so I would sort of want to like round that against, again, some of the stuff we find in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Uh, the other film I want to use, I thought about The Lion and Winter, which is another Henry II story, but I'm going to go ahead and leave it out. It might be something I just might show a clip or two of, but I wouldn't actually assign it as a film to watch. But I decided on A Knight's Tale, uh, starring Heath Ledger. Ugh. And uh, because... It is a story in which a person uh, is, because of their nobility and their honor, is able to supersede the class structure of England. That doesn't happen. That maybe still hasn't happened. And, of course, the way in, in which the film is anachronistic, you know, the way Queen music and ACDC and other bands are used uh, throughout the film is also very, very fun. Heath Ledger's performance is fantastic. We do see a return of uh, Little John, which is fun uh, there at the end of the film. But what I would want to think about is the ways in which England kind of keeps remembering or re-remembering itself. Again, in, in all of these cases, kind of filtered through the American imaginary. But re-remembering itself in ways that are more noble, more idealized than are accurate. And to maybe say and suggest that that's not entirely bad, that maybe misremembering history is a way in which we are rejecting some of our historical precedents and striving forward toward a better future. Now, 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 brown cow, how we change when we want to say something different. Uh, Arthur, I don't know if you recall, uh, but a, a couple fortnights ago, uh, when you and I were uh, singing the praises of one delightful, the kid who would be king, uh, Dustin sang a very different tune about when we forget the legacy of colonialism uh, and the legacy of monarchy. Uh, and, and how that idealism can be uh, blinded and uh, lead to uh, some naive decision-making. Well, you know, I hadn't quite gotten there yet because I thought I might assign the kid who would be king to this particular mm, yes. uh, syllabus for exactly that purpose because I maybe have thought a little bit more about it. And uh, despite the fact that the film does indeed forget, I have to wonder about the process of forgetfulness and the ways in which a film might foreground its own forgetfulness. 
and uh, sometimes that film might be found liable, and maybe the kid who would be king would might be found liable. I still think perhaps in this particular case uh, for its forgetfulness, and in some ways it might be found to be aspirational, uh, mm. which might be the case of uh, a Knight's Tale. And uh, so I'm, I, you know, and and I'm not entirely decided either way on either one of those particular films, but I do think that conversation needs to be held because. Why one is forgetful is important. And I think maybe the most culpable of all the films might be Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and also Beckett. Um, but I'm not entirely convinced even of myself uh, regarding that. So that's where I am. Yeah, I, I, I'm very interested in this class estimate because, you know, we do know from the historical record um, much that Paul Joseph Watson of Infowars.com wishes it were different, uh, <laughs> that uh, the British Isles have been, you know, uh, ethnically and racially uh, diverse uh, and homogenized or – heter- well, fuck it. I'm not going to try to use a $5 word just to say I Heterogeneous. Thank you, Dustin. Uh, I knew I could count on you. Uh, but, but again, we do know that, that the islands have, you know, had a bit more diversity uh, throughout the historical record than some people find convenient. Uh, but you are absolutely right to have a, the conversation about uh, the easy breeziness with which uh, Morgan Freeman, uh, as a, a Moorish character, uh, navigates uh, his travels with uh, Kevin Costner. It, it seems unlikely, even though the film does kind of try to lampshade that by saying he's He's going to make a point to say, oh, you know, I'm traveling with him as a servant. Uh, he does have a giant sword on his hip, though, for the entirety of that. And I, I don't I, I don't know uh, what the rules were like back then, but I don't I don't think they let you let your servants, uh, you know, come strapped. I'm not sure. Uh, but, yeah, you're, you're right to, to interrogate that. Uh, and I, 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 you know, I roasted you a little bit with the kid who would be king. Or is it the boy? Is I think it's the kid. The kid who uh, would be, yes. I thought it was the gender neutral. Yeah, uh, I, I am glad to see your opinions uh, uh, evolved and yet still has some reservations. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about your class, man. Uh, you brought up some interesting stuff. Yeah, well, I'm, I have to rewatch the kid, and which I actually bought on Amazon when I had to watch it for the class, so I, or watch it for the podcast. So I might have to rewatch it to make my mind up, but. I'm not sure that the kid who would be king quite gets away from the colonial history in a way that is obvious. It just sort of pretends mm, like it didn't okay. happen in, in a way that it seems like maybe a movie like The Knight's Tale sort of knows its own problems. Okay. And – does not do them. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not convinced. But well, it seems that's like where I'm kind of It seems as though we have found ourselves softly segueing into the thing we we you know we do every week. The thing we do the show just to do. Oh yeah, I think it's time to get down to business, y'all. It's business. It's business time. And that's right, your listener. That business is, as always, analysis. I am so stoked. To be talking analysis with my dear co-host. Um, I guess since we've been talking about it, let's talk about colonialism and racism, uh, maybe classism a little bit because I want to. Well, let's go ahead and throw... save that for a different con- well, concept. Look, yeah, let's let's uh, make sure we're covering all of our bases. Let's throw gender in there too because we have not talked much about the incredibly talented Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, uh, who is in this film. Uh, if if you believe it, uh, she is in fact. Uh, yeah, and doesn't get a whole lot to do, and there's a lot of interesting things to problematize and uh, ask some damn questions about, right? So I guess the first thing is, 
the way in which Robin says no man deserves to suffer in that prison. That's not normal. Well, you know, the film tries to have him wrestle with it, right? It does, and it's it's interesting. Uh, we we've strangely, I feel like the last probably eight months or so of doing the podcast, I, I feel like we keep hitting on the weird racial politics of '90s cinema. Uh, but we just keep watching '90s movies where it happens. Uh, so it's I don't think it's us. I think it was Hollywood. Uh, but you know, this keeps coming up, and Kevin Costner. Uh, both as the character's written and as he is playing it, does seem to play how how big of a mental cognitive shift it would require for this English dude uh, to accept Azim as an equal, right? Like, the, the film does seem to be trying to to wrestle with that idea that, like, it took him a while to make the right decision. But I, I think you're right, Dustin. It, I don't know how realistic it is, but Robin Hood is kind of an unrealistic figure, right? Um so is it okay? You know, I, I buy it, I think, in the context of this film. Uh, I, I think it's nice. It allows you to to have, uh, an, you know, you're saying, hey, we're, we're putting more kinds of people in this movie. So I, th- I think that's nice. But yeah, the, the role he has in the film and the things he does and the things he says uh, and the life debts he pledges, uh, those things are kind of interesting and, and maybe... Uh, worth uh, taking a look well, at. Well, they're a very magical minority. I mean, there's a lot of Yo, that, for sure. you know, in the sort of spirituality of all that. But there's another way in which, I think about Friar Tuck specifically, the way in which he eventually accepts Asim because Asim can successfully perform a cesarean section. And he's distrustful. The barbarian will kill her is the idea that is being put forward by Friar Tuck. And then when he does so successfully... We're buddies. Let's drink and try to save each other's souls. No. Well, well, the line he has, I think, is really great. He says, I like to think myself a godly man, but I'm not a worldly man. Will you please forgive me? And I, I don't know. I think that's kind of nice, right? This dude who's like, hey, I, I, I am small-minded and not well-traveled, so I, I made a judgment that was not cool, and I want to apologize for that. Like, I don't know. I think that's kind of a nice moment in the film. Yeah, except for it's not, not at all 14th century believable. Is what I was going to say. You don't think, you don't think, you yourself, uh, a man of faith, you don't think there's some clergy in 14th century England who could get over their uh, Islamophobia? You don't think a chance in hell? Uh, I, I would say not, not a chance in hell. Um, I would, <laughs> I would say, but it's a very, very poor chance. Uh, just, okay. just, just be, a broke clock is right twice a day is kind of logic that somebody might use. <laughs> Uh, at a moment like that. And they say, okay, so the broke lock knew how to work because he understood a thing about horses and uh, did some horse doctrine on this woman. But that does not mean this is a good person. This is still a monster and a barbarian and uh, not to be trusted. And he's out here to damn all of our souls. Like, I I don't know, man. I want to – it's a folktale, right? It's a, it's a morality play. I want to believe that the uh, the anarcho-cooperative of Sherwood Forest is, you know, egalitarian. I, well, I mean, so do I for obvious reasons as well. But, I again, I want to like, historically interrogate the way in which it, it does seem to be easy. Well, and the way in which um, Asim is offered mead when they're circled around the table after the, the big uh, Little John fight and uh, has English custom – you know, grown so cold over time that my friend is not welcome at this circle or whatever. And of course, they offer him meat and he has to decline. But 
I'm like, no, ain't nobody drinking after that guy. Ain't nobody putting their lips on that gourd after a black guy put his lips on it. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think that's going to be the case in the 14th century. Well, and I guess maybe uh, to to kind of get to uh, you know we're not going to solve this today. Uh, the three of us, I don't think. <laughs> so uh, to to get uh, to put a put it pin in this and move on to some of the other uh, you know, questions of identity that we need to uh, look at. Uh, I think the most 90s moment of it is uh, when the child asks him if uh, God painted him, which, again, is a lovely fucking neoliberal cute post-racial moment in a 90s Hollywood action It's very film. We Are the World, uh, yeah. It's so – yeah, man. It really rings as some uh, – uh, imagine all the people Zoom call uh, is really how <laughs> it, it, it plays, right? It's a cute moment. I, I get it. it. It just is wild to go back and look at the 90s and, and watch just a strange, strange country go go through uh, th- this moment of a perceived uh, equality. I, I, it, we're not the first film podcast to, to talk on this. We won't be the last, but it just is a strange thing, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, so let's talk about classism, uh, shall, shall we? we? Uh, you mentioned Will. You mentioned Will Scarlet a bit and his position in class in relation to Robin of Roxley. We find out towards the end of the film, of course, that Will Scarlet is uh, Robin's half brother. Uh, now, the interesting thing that I didn't talk about uh, in the, the history of Robin Hood folklore class, uh, Robin Hood's uh, class status himself has been changed uh, throughout the tellings uh, in this film in particular. Do either of you uh, you guys know about this? You heard about this? Uh- Refresh me. I mm. think I probably heard it at one point, but no, I, I didn't care, didn't pay attention. So please enlighten me. I think you will both find this quite interesting. Uh, so in the original earliest recording, uh, recorded uh, tellings of the tale, Robin Hood was what was called a yeoman, uh, which was an attendant in a noble household. Uh, so, you know, uh, he he would have been living on a noble's estate, but uh, yeah, he's uh, he's he's middle management. Uh, my dude is part of the uh, professional managerial class, uh, and uh, rises up. Okay, like Thomas uh, Beckett in um, yeah, Beckett, petit yeah. petit bourgeois. Yeah. yeah, I mean he really is within the original telling, like lower middle class to middle class as far as the structure of uh, medieval England goes. Uh, and, and it is only in later tellings that he becomes a nobleman who who sees the uh, you know becomes kind of a. Uh, a Buddha character where he's like, ah, being a rich man sucks. I should stop doing this. Um, again, that's kind of an interesting uh, component of of class uh, and those narratives we have going on, not just in the film Prince of Thieves, but really in all tellings of Robin Hood. Uh, because you can look at, you know, DC's Green Arrow, right? Uh, Oliver Queen's a rich dude. He, he's he's mega Batman um, or reverse Batman, however you want to call it. So, yeah, there's some stuff here, uh, both within the, the evolution of Robin Hood and the character of Will Scarlet. Yeah, I, I find that really interesting, and I find, uh, again, the acceptance of Will to be really kind of interesting, you know, because honestly, I'm expecting like, oh, so your name's Will Snow, not Will Scarlet, and <laughs> we're done. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the end of the story, yeah. is like, you're a bastard, so who cares? And, uh, but that's not, again, because we've been with... Kevin Costner's character this long and the way in which Kevin Costner plays that character. Again, the historical context maybe sort of rails against the possibilities of the sort of 
I have a brother, I have a brother, and a hug. Uh, that I don't know. History's, history is full of, uh, you know, your so-called great bastards or whatever, right? Like these illegitimate children of uh, the rich and famous uh, and the moneyed and powerful that do uh, rise up to get some somewhat legitimate recommendation. Or, yeah, when uh, they take what's it. What's what I'm looking for. That's true. I guess that's a very good point. They usually get that notification or uh, recognition, rather, by, uh, yeah, uh, taking what's theirs. You make a good point. All right. Uh, sorry. I, you know, again, I'm, I, I just don't want to be too generous to the film, you know, uh, because I think Robin Hood as a character, rob from the rich, give to the poor, like, I'm all for that kind of ethos. Like, that sounds awesome, right? But I'm not quite sure the movie quite gets us there because the status quo at the end is there's still going to be on the throne in England. Everyone, everyone's going to still bow down. He's still going to get rights at this wedding, and everyone's going to know their place by the time it's all said and done. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, that is the interesting thing about this character evolving to be a member of the noble class, right? It allows mm-hmm. Robin Hood uh, to be a character that still maintains the status quo. It is not this inherent system of monarchies and feudal land holdings uh, that is corrupt and must be burnt to the ground uh, and the earth salted. Uh, it's uh, it's King Richard. King Richard's just off doing a war crime. Uh, once he gets back, it'll be all better. Uh, once you know, once once George uh, gets done accomplishing the mission on an aircraft carrier, uh, then we can solve uh, the myriad problems of society. Uh, yeah, it, it is interesting that that shift to, to noblemen that allows him to say uh, he's still in favor of the monarchy. And again, uh, you know, of course, the films do this because that's the character becomes known as a nobleman who uh, breaks bad, or you know, however you want to talk about it. Uh, so it's it's not surprising to me. Uh, that a film adaptation tends to carry uh, that that evolution of, of the, the folktale, right? Uh, because, of course, as, as you've talked about with The Kid Would Be King and all, all these other uh, tale, tellings of these similar tales, Dustin, you know, these, these fictionalized, fictionalized, idealized Englands, uh, that is kind of a common thing, is finding the, the way to still love uh, England as, as it has been traditionally. Oh, for sure, for sure. And again, I, I just wonder how much this film, again, sort of takes the fangs out of the idea of something of a revolutionary idea of like, you know what? They can't make their money if we don't work for them anymore. You know, um, I, you know, I won't do what you told me as Rage Against the Machine said. Like, there's a way in which this film sort of tries to have its cake and eat it too. And I just want to, I want to just yeah. sort of make that clear, I guess, at this point. Um, so you talked about the rapiness of this movie a little bit, Dalton. Can you say uh-huh. a little bit more about that? Oh, I don't know if I, I want to, uh, but yeah, I guess I, I can. So I'll, yeah, I know you don't want to either. So I guess I'll, we'll get it out of the way quickly. As Arthur mentioned, uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham is a funny character in this film. Uh, I think that is uh, without objection. He, he is clearly being played as a humorous foil to Robin Hood. Uh, when your character's top, one of his top three defining attributes is sex pest, having that character <laughs> be a focus of levity and delight is, um, oh, I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for here? I believe the technical term is fucked. Don't do that. Don't do that with your screenplay. <laughs> it's not cool, man. Uh, feels, I don't know. He feels like the frat bro. Mm-mm. That, you know, is constantly just 
trying to get whatever he wants. Yeah, he feels like weird the, yeah, the, yeah. the bully in an 80s ski movie, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, or like think, Pepe Le Pew. Well, I think the interesting thing, especially with the Maid Marian scene at the end, is not only – it's the tonal shift because the part where he springs up, drops down, and then spreads her legs with his feet is straight out of parody. But the rest of that sequence plays pretty unnervingly. Yeah. And so it's an odd way to frame that character and also that action, which yeah. – I mean that's played for a laugh, I'm pretty sure. The cutting – again, Arthur, we talked about the weirdness of this film's editing. Yeah, I would agree with you. It is edited like a, a, a rim – like a – like it's it's got a real timing – a comedic timing quality to the edit. And yeah, Alan Rickman and Mary Elizabeth Mastertoni are on completely different planets for that scene, dude. It's – yeah, it's tonally just a mess. Uh, I know I trailed off like I was going to say something else. You guys can't see my face, so it's not clear that I'm done talking. But yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about it. Like, yeah, you're right. you're absolutely right, Arthur. Uh, he's doing a bit, and I get that. I don't. I think Rickman's doing it as humorous because he doesn't want to play a character like that. That's that's that gross. Well, I, I guess. Yeah. Go ahead. I think. Well, go ahead. I was just going to move on if we were done well, with this part. But if you have, I have one last thought, on. and this is for like the the seeds of what will sort of finally flower in the Victorian era: this idea of coverture and women, and the danger of a maid Marian is she is not under the covering the coverture of a man, and she can do what she wants when she wants, and that's part of why she must be controlled. Uh, by a character like the Sheriff of Nottingham. I mean, obviously, she's related to King Richard. She's like a cousin or whatever. Um, and there's some political intrigue about, like, oh, if you let Richard know in France this is what's going on, he'll come back home and, you know, he'll mess things up for you. And John, who's gone uh, from this particular version of the Robin Hood story. But this idea that she's an uncovered, she's an uncovertured woman. And, uh, this is part of why, uh, his interests seem to, seem to be applied and the way in which, you know, that particular culture is just trying to control women and their bodies specifically. Well, yeah, Dustin, if you let your rich children not get married and start breeding, then they might figure out that their wealth is ill gotten and they might do something more noble with it than, you know, just spitting out more rich kids. Uh, you gotta get them married off quick, or they might, I don't know, do something stupid with the family dime. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it is it is a, you know, a system of control we're familiar with uh, throughout, you know, the, the grossness of history. Uh, and it, it does make sense within the context of the film. It's just, it's weird. Uh, Arthur, what were you going to pivot us to next? Uh, well, since we brought up Mary, and I think the other interesting thing, and I'd read this in some reviews pointing it out, but this is a character who is inner. Inner, ugh. this is a character who is introduced as a very headstrong, powerful woman who can go toe to toe with Robin Hood in a sword fight duel. Uh, but then by the end of the film, her kind of autonomy is completely removed and she is the damsel in distress. And I didn't know if there's anything we wanted to kind of mm. go with there or talk about there. It's just an interest. And I know this is kind of a yeah. thing in blockbusters. I think of, uh, I remember Ebert mentions it for Titanic with Kate Winslet, who is very headstrong and, sh you know, cocksure at the beginning of the film. But by the end, she is having to be rescued in certain scenes. Let's and, and call this. So, yeah, let's call this trope. It's okay to be strong and powerful when there are no stakes. Yeah, let's. 
but when there are stakes, then you need to. We're absolutely all. Yeah, I think what we're getting to is it's the uh, the Mary Jane character trope, right? It, it is the uh, one moment it's all uh, easier. You just hit the jackpot, Tiger, and the next moment it's uh, you know. Kirsten Dunst doesn't have anything to do in Spider-Man 3 because they uh, wanted to make her a damsel distress again. Uh, it is the you, – your love interest uh, has to be cool uh, and interesting and hot and independent uh, so that your leading man and uh, all, all the people who like women in the audience are going, oh, yeah – what an interesting uh, and, and fun love interest character. But yeah, you can't have her just solve her own problems at the end of the movie because then you don't have a conventional three-act blockbuster. Yeah. I mean... Correct. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting, though. Again, and it's it's not um, a problem unique to this film. Um, Robin, or the, the, the Mask of Zorro, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones has this a little bit, but even that film, I think, navigates it better. But I, I only bring that film up to say... It's something that uh, I think we can see in a lot of films of this era, uh, and it's a you know a frustrating trope that's really prominent uh, throughout this decade. So, can we talk about driving Mister Loxley a little bit? Who? <laughs> yeah, I feel like we got uh, honestly. I feel like we've kind of crossed that off the list uh, with your you know we kind of had a, a little bit of a post mortem on your uh, your syllabus, Dustin. I, I don't know what more I have to say about it. Do you have any thoughts? Well, I, I just want to talk about the romanticization of Islam mm. that makes it look almost like an exact analog to Christianity, the way in which it homogenizes. Yeah, and, okay. Well, and I think here I, – I know what we have to say that's different because I think that homogenization uh, – you know, we you, you made a reference to Saxons and stuff. There's just some interesting ethnic stuff in general uh, going on in this film. Right, Celts. Yeah, right. the Celts that uh, are, you know, uh, look like Picts, which are not the same thing as Celts. It's a, it's a whole thing, right? Uh, and I'll be the first one to say it's very okay to be racist to my uh, my beautiful drunk Bach people. Uh, <laughs> it's funny and hilarious, and white on white racism is is a delightful thing, and we should keep it amongst ourselves and never do it ever again elsewhere. Uh, but yeah, it's it's weird. Uh, it's just a weird call. Uh, I, I guess I get it. You know, the Celts have Viking uh, relations in their their family tree. Uh, they're uh, an interesting people historically, uh, but it's weird to just kind of make them a thing that still exists as an independent tribe in fourteen hundred in the fourteen hundreds because that's not quite what was going on anymore. And likewise, it is weird to just kind of equate uh, 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 m- you know uh, Moorish uh, Muslims and Arabic Muslims. Uh, yeah, there, there's some weird just uh, well, it's it's the the Independence Day thing, right? Where each country just kind of l- it looks like the cartoon version of itself when they're celebrating. Well, I was thinking more about the sort of eroticization of the Orientalism of this. Okay. I'm thinking about Edvar Said's and his Orientalism book and the way in which Asim's particular version of Islam is, again, basically Christian in content and only slightly more mystical in practice. Okay, yeah. That it, it, it's just he's, – he's just like us. He's just got connections. And, and, and again, you brought up Titanic earlier. The way in which, like, the sort of salt of the earth kind of character just has a deeper, more spiritual connection. But we're all tapping into the same kinds of things. And, I mean, I'm all for, like, many paths of a mountain and, like, the conversations of interreligious dialogue. Like, that's fine. But I'm not about collapsing the systems to say they're basically the same. Because that what it does is it erases the history 
of say Islam or Sikhism well, or Buddhism it's, or any other. You it's know. why we should be leery about saying things like Judeo-Christian, right? You can't just collapse right. the Abrahamic faiths into one thing because it sure does ignore all the times that each uh, each member of that triad has tried to murder the other or murder each other. Even I mean, there's a a, a long and, and a bloody. Understandings from time to time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah yes, the, the history of sectarian conflict comes from a distinct place of experience, and yeah, all kinds of stuff that you you need to talk about, which again brings up the Celts and you know the uh, the long history of sectarian conflict for for those peoples. Uh, it's you, you can't just go around collapsing stuff. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I I just want to mention more of that minimization there. That because when I watched, first watched this movie in 1991. I didn't know Islam was not Christianity. I thought, oh, could I be a Muslim? Could that be a thing? And I, I mean, I didn't know because I was like, I seems a good guy. He's noble and he's, you know, a good character and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't see anything in the film that made me think this is not Christianity. Yeah, it is. And that's troubling. Speaking to Christianity in this film, though, that, that is an interesting quirk of Azim is uh, the uh, – calling uh robin christian uh consistently throughout the right. film kind of a i don't know i don't know it, it does kind of just layer on that eroded is or um uh, uh, let's just say uh, the fetishization of the oriental or the orientalization what's the what's the proper academic term i'm looking for here dustin you mentioned earlier. orientalism thank you uh also i was thinking about you know some of the subaltern stuff that we've talked about here on the show before right this uh idea of uh, this unknowable uh, character, and because of that, that uh, their unknowability of their experience, they become something uh, a fetish object for uh, the fucking colonizers. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's all of a piece with stuff we we talk about a lot on the show, uh, right? It, well, of course, but it is Austin interesting. Does call him Sadiq as well? That's true. Which, which means I, like honest friend. Yeah, I looked that up. Uh, I wanted to know. I can't not know when I hear something like that. I'm curious. So yeah, it, it, he is very much. Uh, makes a point to keep talking about the reason he is in league with Robin is because he trusts him. Right. And while that, you know, Morgan Freeman acquits himself uh, well enough in the performance to like, you believe that Azim likes Robin, you believe their friendship well enough in the, the confines of this uh, buddy cop adventure that we were kind of going on. Arthur has had a, a lot of interesting things to say about buddy cop structures over the last couple of weeks. I feel like it keeps coming up on the show. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's very much this nineties lethal weapon, you know, thing. Uh, every movie after lethal weapon had to be lethal weapon because that's how Hollywood works. Uh, and that stuff with Azim looking at Robin as it, I've been circling around this because I was trying to find a delicate way to say it, but uh, Azim gives Robin a pass to the barbecue, right? Like that's what the calling him Sadiq is, is it is uh, – well, you can tell Robin Hood's a really good guy because he has a black friend. And that really is yeah. what the tone of the film – and I, I think that's why we spent so much time on this aspect of the film is we were trying to find the most succinct way to get at this point. Yeah, I think so. He is okay because he has a I – mean, yeah, yeah, I think you just nailed it. It's, it's the most 90s-ass thing we about this movie. That's what we were circling around, and I didn't even know it until you said it, but you're absolutely right. Um, so do we have any – I feel like we've kind of gotten the man worth the 90s tone deaf stuff out of the way. Um, is there anything that we want to talk about in terms of the way blockbusters were made in this era? Uh is there anything there that we want to get to? I know, Dustin, you mentioned the emotional stakes of this film kind of working more often than we don't. Do we want to talk about some of that form stuff? Do we Do we have anything? Or are we ready to bring it on home? 
but I was just going to say, like, the way in which the emotional dynamics work and the way in which the sort of plot points work are mostly fundamentally sort of underscored, fun pun there, by the score. Where? I mean, it really works. Like, you feel Yeah, the score's doing a lot of heavy lifting. Man, I mean, it totally works. And when that Brian Adams little, like, motif keeps coming back in for the romance theme, or when the heroic themes sort of show up, like, it's got it's got a very Star Wars kind of feel to it. And that's part of why I think this movie was such a success in 1991 uh, in theaters. And, I mean, I don't know if there's more to say about than that, but I think, I think musically, um, that's part of the, maybe seven-eighths of why it's so successful. I'd, I'd tell you what. Um, as we, we bring this train into the station and we move on to uh, the, the the verdicts, uh, how we feel about this film definitively, uh, Arthur, I'm with your dad. I don't see the appeal of Kevin Costner. Um, we, you know, uh... we, we're going to be talking about Molly's Game on next week's episode. Uh, I think he's pretty good there. I guess what I will say, and Dustin, I, I'm so sorry to pain you. I'll, I'll double back and I'll clarify I don't see the appeal of 90s Kevin Costner. I really like uh, later period uh, mentor uh, era Kevin Costner. I, I like him in this aura, even uh, open range, uh, beleaguered cowboy uh, over the hill Kevin Costner. Young Kevin Costner? Mm, I don't like it. I think he got much more interesting when his face got wrinkly. I am 100% with you, I think. I, I think Bull Durham is a great movie. I love Bull mm, Durham. I do you like Bull Durham? I th- I think Untouchables is good, but I don't think it's because of Costner. Um, and so, I, and there's, a, I mean, there is a period there where I'm not familiar. Like I said, I, I haven't seen Waterworld or Postman or Silverado. You know, I've seen Open Range. I think Open Range is great. Um, but like you said, I think the later stuff, when he is in this more mentor figure role or this kind of aged, wiz- wizened role. Um, Gilded Dreams? Uh, Gilded Dreams a, at all? No? I haven't seen it. Uh, okay. No, I didn't. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Um, you know, so for me, you know, I haven't seen Tin Cup. I haven't seen uh, For Love of the Game. Ah, um, but okay, okay. So God, he's been in a lot of fucking sports. So movies. much makes more sense to me now. Okay, <laughs> it's been so many sports movies. But I mean, you know, to Dalton's point, I mean, this is a movie I look at. I'm like, I don't get it. I, I don't. I don't know. You know, I, I, he's. You know, I don't know. I'm just Again, kind of beleaguered here. Arthur, you mentioned, and I'm so glad you did, uh, and we have kind of soft transitioned, and I'm going to steal Dustin's job, as I have been doing, as we've been doing these over the internet. It it's so much easier. I know it doesn't. <laughs> so we come to the point in the show where we render our final verdicts. Does this belong on the shelf uh, with your copy of Eraserhead and Drive, uh, or I don't know, whatever you're into. Uh, that's just kind of the aesthetic of this show. Uh, does this sh- this film belong on your shelf, or does it belong in the trash? And I, th- I think, Arthur, you and me are pretty much in agreement it belongs in the trash, right? Yeah. I, yeah. The, down in the dumps. And I'm going to say trash, too, actually. I mean, I think it's I think it's a lot of fun. And I really like it, but I don't need to own it at all. I kind of suspected that was the case, Dustin. Yeah, you, your defense of it was was passionate, but it did kind of seem like you were also mostly a, a big meh on it. But uh, Arthur, I'm so glad you brought up Terminator 2 uh, in your, your your intro for for this film because it is weird. I, I don't see the appeal. I'm right there with you. I don't know how it made $300 million the same year that Terminator 2 came out. Like – uh, these films are not even in the, the same league, man. Uh, they're not even the same sport. I don't understand. It's wild. I'll tell you that. Uh, what are we doing next week, Arthur? Oh, I already spoiled it. Why don't yeah, you tell you, everybody? Yeah. Why don't you make You're it right. sound pretty, though? Oh, yeah. 
You're taking all of our jobs, aren't you? I'm so, it's so weird to not be able to see your faces. I can't, it makes it so much easier. Well, as somebody already spoiled, uh, next week, uh, and you spoiled the movie you kind of pointed us towards, uh, we are talking about Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut, Molly's Game, starring Jessica Chastain uh, with Idris Elba. It is available to watch on Netflix if you'd like to watch along with us. Um, yeah, it's it's based on a true story. I think there'll be some interesting discussion about all that partakes and unfolds in that movie. And so, yeah, check it out if you haven't seen It'll it. It'll be loads yeah, of fun. Yeah, if you thought we were... Yeah, if you thought we were done talking about uh, women in Hollywood movies this week, uh, if you thought that we got our fill of it uh, today, <laughs> we haven't even gotten started yet. Uh, if you have thoughts, Arthur, I knew you could introduce next week's film much prettier than I could. I was right. All right, listener, uh, we had some technical difficulties. I forgot what I was, uh, how I was segueing into this. But if you have thoughts on the next week's show or uh, this week's show, uh, you can go over to Twitter. We're at good underscore trash. You can also see what we're interested in in the world of social media and film Twitter. Uh, that's at good underscore trash. You don't have to go there, though. Social media is a bad, bad place. Uh, we can't be outside for too, too long in, in these weird times. But, yeah, go go for a walk or something. You don't need to be on Twitter. Uh, call your grandma. Tell her about this show. I don't know. She might be into it. Uh, but, yeah, if you have uh, further thoughts that you think need a long-form response, you can go to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for that long-form feedback. As mentioned already, we have fun bonus content over at uh, patreon.com forward slash GTM. Fun bonus content for you there, and uh, you can help us keep the lights on over here. Uh, and, of course, you've listened to a podcast before, I assume. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, uh, wherever you go to put this podcast on your device. Uh, it helps us out, allegedly. I don't know. There's an algorithm somewhere that's uh, trying to map out our lives like the season of Westworld. Uh, but, you know, help it out. Help us out. It's, you know, a mutually beneficial relationship. Uh, that's how you do social media stuff. Arthur, take us on home. Well, again, join us next week when we flop the river on the turn and play Molly's game. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.